This is the Hui Kala Baptist Church podcast, coming to you from the heart of Honolulu, Hawaii. Hui Kala is a dynamic family of faith committed to solid Bible teaching, discipleship, and helping you grow in your faith. Grab your Bible and prepare to dig deep into the Word with Pastor Anthony King. John chapter 10, we're going to start in verse number uh, 27, I'll read through verse number 29. Again, uh, all these verses we're going to cover tonight, I would highly, highly, highly encourage you, circle these, start these, underline your Bibles. Uh, when we get to the end of this series next week, which will be our last week on eternal security, I'm going to print you a list of about 20 uh, verses or so from the Bible uh, that talk about eternal security so that you can kind of have that as a reference, uh, whether you save it to your, your phone or you keep it uh, somewhere in the back of your Bible or something like that. Uh, but we need to be able to, to go back to these at some point, uh, and so I want to encourage you to make notes in your Bible. If you're not in the habit of writing in the Bible, I, I would highly encourage you to do that. Uh, just verses that uh, draw your attention to something or something that stands out to you or particular words in certain verses that you can underline, uh, things along those lines, I highly encourage you to. Uh, again, mark up your Bible uh, for sure. John chapter 10, uh, verse number 27, Jesus says this, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Uh, again, really important thing to understand. Once Jesus has given you eternal life, he gives you the promise that you will That was exciting. That was fun. Uh, Anyways, you're awake now. Are you sure that you're saved? That's the question. Because the next one might be closer. Okay? Uh, And so uh, I'm just saying, uh, make sure that you know for sure that you're saved. Um, For those of you that don't know, like this is a common occurrence if you live in the city. It's just like uh, not that big of a deal. So uh, anyways, um, I was going to, oh yeah, yeah, Jesus promises, right? What did he promise? He promised eternal life, and those who have eternal life will never perish. Now, again, we, if we were to just stop here and say, those who Jesus has given eternal life, at some point for bad behavior or something like that, he takes that eternal life back and you perish, then Jesus didn't keep his word. And, and, and again, if Jesus cannot be trusted the whole thing unravels, and we have nothing to stand on at all. And so again, if, if we needed no other verses throughout the entire Bible other than this one verse, we could stand on this verse alone by Jesus saying, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. If that's the only verse that we had, we could stand on that with assurance. But here's the thing I need to, to help you understand. We don't build major doctrines from the Bible on one verse alone. That, this is how cults get started. Uh, for example, uh, you know, Uh, Peter says, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sin. Somebody took that verse out of context without the rest of the Bible and say, you have to be baptized to be saved. That's not what he meant. And that's not what the rest of scripture says. But if we take one verse and build an entire doctrine over one verse, uh, we run into major problems. That's how cults get started. So if this were the only verse in the Bible, which it's not, we got about 20 other verses in the Bible. If this were the only one, uh, it's good enough and and we we can stick with it. But here's what he says, verse number 28. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. 
And so Jesus says here, hey, who the Father gives me, I'm going to give them eternal life. They'll never perish, and they're going to be safe and secure in my hand. In addition to that, they're also in the Father's hand, and no man will pluck them out of my Father's hand. Now, when we talk about no man, we're talking about no man, meaning I could not pluck myself out of my Father's hand if I wanted to. And so this, again, we don't have time to cover it tonight. We'll get this to later in our study of salvation, apostasy. What happens when someone renounces their salvation? Uh, is salvation a gift that you can receive, and then you decide that you don't like it, and then you can give it back? Is that the case? Well, take a look at what the Bible has to say about that, but in the short version is, no, you can't give it back. Because, again, at some point you would have been in your father's hand, and you yourself would pluck yourself out of the father's hand, which we know is not possible as we take a look at salvation, it's important to know by way of introduction that authentic salvation is found in faith and repentance. Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, it's a belief with my heart and a confession with my mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord. The word Lord means master. I have to confess that he's in charge. And this is not only a, a confession of faith, but it's a confession of repentance. The word repent in the Bible, the Greek word is metanoia, which literally means a change of mind, which results in a change of, of direction. You have to change your mind that you are in charge. You, you can no longer do that. And that requires you to repent or change your mind. I'm changing my mind that I'm not in charge, and I'm choosing to put Jesus in charge of my life and accept him not only as Savior, but also as Lord. That requires repentance requires me to turn from my sin and turn to Christ. Faith and repentance are necessary for salvation. This is the only one way that anyone has ever been saved or ever will be saved. Again, there's not an Old Testament way that people get saved in a New Testament way. It's always been faith and repentance 100% of the time. If 500 years from now, people will be saved by faith and repentance only. Nothing else. We can't add to that. Again, anytime we add to faith and repentance, we have works-based salvation. Uh, you need to put your faith in Jesus, repent of your sin, and be baptized. We just messed up the whole thing because baptism is a work that we do. Saved, baptized, plus church attendance. Works-based salvation uh, is not true, legitimate, biblical salvation. Next, eternal life is good for how long? Eternity, by very virtue of the, the name. Otherwise, Jesus would say, I give them life. And this life has an expiration date, or this life is uh, subject to change. This life is revocable at any point. But he doesn't say that. He says, I give them eternal life, which is good for eternity. John chapter 5, verse number 24. He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life, and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. Next, we see that genuine salvation saves us from future punishment. You and I deserve God's wrath. You and I deserve condemnation. You and I deserve to go to hell. But genuine salvation puts the punishment on Christ. John 3, 16, we're all very familiar with. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. John 3, 18 says, He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So again, with, with God, it's, it's black and white. You're either saved or you're under condemnation. No middle of the road. Sometimes I talk to people and say, hey, has there been a time in your life where you've been saved or born again? And they say, well, I'm in the process of being saved. Okay, that's not a thing. It's like, you know, 
never ask a woman if she's pregnant, right? But if she is, she's not kind of in the process of becoming pregnant. She's either pregnant or she's not. It's, it, salvation is a binary. Either you have the son and you have life, or you have the, not the son and have not life, and the wrath of God abides on you. John chapter 3, verse 38, I think. So you, you're either saved or you're not saved. And if you're not saved, tonight is your opportunity to be saved. It's not about becoming a Baptist or joining our church or committing to church attendance or uh, anything like that. It's not about doing religious works or trying to be a better person. It's recognition. Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven. My faith and trust must be in him alone, and I'm asking him to save me and forgive me of my sin. If you've never been born again, you must do that. Because, again, if you're not saved, God's punishment is 100% on your shoulders right now. You're literally a dead man, dead woman walking if you have not been saved. Because the moment you take your last breath here on planet Earth, it's eternity of punishment for you. And so, again, salvation is found only through Jesus Christ. Any church that claims to be a source of salvation, I'll just say this in very clear, critical terms, any church that proclaims to be a source of salvation is a cult. Amen. That'll help us delineate in the future. For example, Mormonism. You have to be baptized to go to heaven. Okay, well, can I be baptized at, at who we call a Baptist church? No, you can't. You have to be baptized in a church that has reclaimed the gospel. Well, okay, uh, who's done that? Well, only the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints has reclaimed the gospel, so that's the only place you can be baptized. So you have to be baptized to go to heaven, and you're the only church that can baptize people to go to heaven, therefore you're the source of salvation. Problematic, super problematic. And so salvation is found through Christ alone. John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. So anybody who claims to be an alternate pathway or even a gatekeeper to Jesus Christ before you can get that salvation is 100% unbiblical and cannot be trusted. So again, we know that salvation is found through Christ alone, by faith alone, by God's grace alone, and saves us from future punishment. Genuine salvation cannot be lost, to say it in really clear terms, once saved, always saved. Now, again, there are churches who want to fight this tooth and nail, who want to argue about this, that, you know, your salvation's only good until you sin again, or it's only good until you fall into sin, and nobody can ever really quantify what that means. It's only good, your salvation, your eternal life is only good until you backslide, uh, and then your salvation is no longer good from there. Uh, but again, we don't find any scriptural basis for that. We find a lot of scriptural basis for the fact that we are safe and secure in the promise given to us of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross is sufficient for our salvation. So again, this issue here for me is kind of a, a hot button issue, I could say, because when we talk about if you're saved, we don't really know for sure if we can go to heaven when we die. Sometimes when you ask people, if you die today, are you 100% sure you go to heaven? They say, well, nobody can be really sure. I mean, we won't really know until we get to heaven because only God can judge us. I'll agree with that, that only God can judge us, but he's given us the criteria by which we will be judged. Not by our works of righteousness, which we have done, but by the work of Christ on the cross. That's the criteria by which we are judged. So 100%, only God can judge me, but he tells us how he's going to judge and, and the Bible tells us in 1 John 5, 13, these things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. God wants you to be secure in your salvation. 
God wants you to know that he is strong enough to keep you from falling. He's enough to seal you until the day of redemption. He's enough to keep you from ever losing your salvation. So it's, it's a, a hot button issue for me because an attack on the eternal security of the believer is an attack on the greatness of the Father. It denigrates the work of Jesus and it takes away the power of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And again, that sounds like a really harsh uh, um, accusation to make against those who don't hold to the doctrine of eternal security. But is God strong enough to make you a promise and keep it? Of course, absolutely. And to say that God could ever go back on his promise uh, is, is a, flies in the face of the integrity and the trustworthiness of God. To say that Jesus Christ died on the cross to pay for your sins and extends his grace and mercy to you to save you from your sins, having absorbed 100% of God's punishment, but then say, but you've got to make sure that you do your part of behaving yourself and staying away from big sins and crossing that line where you'll lose your salvation and never backsliding again. Either Christ's blood shed for my sins was enough or it wasn't. And if Christ needs my additional work of good behavior to keep my salvation, then maybe the blood of Christ isn't as powerful as we make it out to be. And let me just tell you, that's a blasphemous statement right there. If the job of the Holy Spirit is the, the, the down payment for our redemption one day, if we're sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise, yet that seal doesn't really mean anything, then is the Holy Spirit as valuable as we think that it is? When we lose our salvation, do we also lose the Holy Spirit? We would have to because Romans tells us if any man have not the Spirit of God, he's none of his. And so you can't be unsaved and still have the Holy Spirit. So is the Holy Spirit one of those things that kind of comes and goes with us? Or are we the temple of the Holy Ghost? Or are we the temple of the Holy Ghost and then the, the Spirit leaves us and we're no longer the Spirit of, uh, temple of the Holy Ghost? Really unclear. But again, if that's the case, then this whole thing becomes incredibly, incredibly fuzzy and confusing. And let me just tell you this, God's not the author of confusion. God's the author of distinction, of clarity. God wants you to know. Look, if God was trying to keep you in the dark about something, he wouldn't have written 66 books and preserved them over all of human history to tell you about who he is. God wants you to have clarity. God wants you to have surety in him. Ephesians chapter 1, verse number 13 says, In whom you also trusted, after that you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and whom after that you also believed and were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Turn it over to Ephesians chapter 1 as we take a look at the ministry of the Holy Spirit and his role in salvation. Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter, 13, uh, Ephesians chapter 1, verse number 13. Circle verses 13 and 14 in your Bible. You'll, you'll need these later. In whom also you trusted. Speaking about trusting in Christ, verse 12. After that, you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. That's why I love that song to, today. Uh, there is one gospel. Man, there is one gospel, and that's what saved me, and that's what's going to keep me to all of eternity. That's why I love that song we sang, Man of Sorrows, because it's the story of the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what saved your soul. In whom after that ye believe, ye were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, 
which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of his glory. Verse 14 tells us that the Holy Spirit was given to us as a down payment. That earnest payment is what that means. Just like when you buy a house, you put down a down payment or earnest money until you can actually pay for the entire thing in full. The idea is that God hasn't paid for your and I souls in full. It's a matter of we have not yet been fully redeemed or bought, brought back because that'll take place when we see God together in heaven. But until then, he's given us his spirit as a promise that we belong to him. Now, verse number 13 tells us that we are sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise. The sealing was a really big deal in, the, in Bible times. Kings would have uh, a ring that they would wear that had their signet on it. You would uh, drip wax on a piece of paper, and then you would press the ring into it to show uh, who, belonged, who it belonged to, who had authorized it, and to protect it against any type of tampering. I don't know if you remember in uh, the Old Testament that, that uh, one of the... the uh, uh, I think it was Judah had gone out and had, had slept with his uh, daughter-in-law who was, was a, um, pretending to be a prostitute, and he had given her his ring. Uh, and, and then as a, as a promise that he would come back and pay for, for his services later, and he didn't. And she showed it off to everybody and basically got him in a, a ton of trouble with that. Because that seal was a very, very big deal. Again, it marked ownership. It, it was proof of a promise that had been made, and then it sealed it just like you and I would seal an envelope to protect it against tampering. And so the Holy Spirit is, first of all, it's a mark of ownership to prove that you belong to God. Again, Romans uh, 5 tells us, if any man have not the Spirit of God, he is none of his. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, it's because you're not saved. So it's a proof of ownership. Secondly, it's a proof of a promise that has been made. Just like you would sign a contract, a, a seal by a king was a promise that he would fulfill the, the promise that he had made. What's the promise here? That you and I will be redeemed and brought to heaven one day, and we've been given the Holy Spirit as proof of ownership and a promise to fulfill the obligation. But then at the, the same time, just like you and I would seal an envelope, the seal was meant to protect it against any type of, of tampering. If you were passing a letter from one place to another and it was sealed by a king's signet, you couldn't just break the seal, tamper with the inside, and then close it back because that seal had been broken. And so it was a big-time no-no to ever break a king's seal without prior authorization. So this is the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So then the question comes, if that's the case, if one has been sealed, has the Holy Spirit forever as a promise of future redemption, is sealed by the Spirit as a sign of Jesus' ownership, does one lose that promise, security, ownership, and indwelling by sinning? And if so... That seal's probably not as valuable as we make it out to be. If it can be so easily broken, if it can be so easily snatched away by what? Me, me sinning, me, quote, falling into sin, by me backsliding. And again, at what point does one cross the line? If you miss church for three weeks, do you lose your salvation? If you don't come to church for, you know, six weeks, do you lose your salvation? At what point do you lose it? Or is it for only gross, egregious sins? For those people who maybe commit murder or commit uh, adultery or things like that, that's when you would lose your salvation. If we're talking in, in legal terms as far as when one is guilty, uh, the book of James says if any man offended in one point of the law, he's guilty of all of it. And so when it comes to guilt before God for our sin, it, one sin's no different than the others. So then the question comes is if we're sealed by the Holy Spirit of God, how can we break that seal how can we renounce our ownership? How can we 
cause God's promise to be of none effect all by what? By our own behavior, by our own actions? Uh, it, again, it just doesn't even biblically make sense. And, and then the question is, if we're sealed by the Holy Spirit, how long are we sealed by the Holy Spirit? Only until we backslide or if we sin again? Ephesians chapter 4, Ephesians turn over to chapter number 4, verse number 30. Ephesians 4.30, and grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, <clears throat> whereby you are sealed unto the day of redemption. So how can you and I break a seal that is sealed until the day we actually get to heaven, until the day we are fully redeemed? You and I have been purchased back from the slave market of sin. That is our redemption. But the day of redemption is the day we actually get to see God face to face and are fully redeemed. So, if we're sealed until the day of redemption, how can you and I break that seal? Well, if one could break the seal, that would be a pretty uh, important thing for Paul to mention here. If we can lose that seal, we can lose that Holy Spirit, all the promises of God are turned upside down and are made of no effect, that would be included in Scripture, but it isn't. Because you and I are not kept by our own power, by our own good works. You and I are kept by the power of God by the sealing of the Holy Spirit, by the finished work of Christ on the cross, not by things that you and I have done or have not done. So then we see Hebrews chapter 7. Turn over your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 7 if you would. Hebrews chapter 7 finds us speaking of Jesus Christ as our better high priest, different than the Levites, different than Aaron, different than uh, any other priest. We have a better high priest, uh, starting in Hebrews chapter 7, verse number 21. For those priests were made without an oath, but this with an oath by him that said unto him, the Lord swear and will not repent. Thou art a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Speaking, Jesus is a, a priest, and that will never be taken away from him. By so much was Jesus made surety of a better testament or a better covenant. And they truly were many priests because they were not suffered to continue by reason of death. In other words, uh, these priests couldn't be priests forever because they died. But this man, because he continueth forever, hath an unchangeable priesthood. So Jesus is our forever high priest. We don't need any more priests anymore. So again, we could even take a look at any religion who would have a priest as a mediator between us and God. We don't need those any longer. The priesthood is forever completed because we have a high priest in Jesus Christ. And then verse 25, circle star, underline this. Wherefore, he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come to, unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. For such a high priest became us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens, who needeth not daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifice for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. For this he did once when he offered up himself. For the law maketh men high priests which have infirmity, 
but the word of the oath which since the law maketh the son who is consecrated forevermore. Hey, you have these priests who had to make their own sacrifices to cleanse themselves first. Jesus didn't have to do that. He made a sacrifice, Hebrews tells us, once and for all that we no longer need any sacrifices because sacrifice has already been offered by our high priest. But then verse number 25 says something really interesting. This priest wasn't just making sacrifices. He was able to save you to the uttermost. What does that mean? That means completely in every way that one can be saved, Jesus has saved those who come to him in faith and repentance to the uttermost, completely, No part of them is left unsaved. And then what does he do? He maketh intercession for them. Uh, He becomes our advocate with the Father. Uh, Again, see, he ever liveth to make intercession for them. So then this begs the question, if you and I can sin against the grace of God and lose our salvation, how can one who is saved to the uttermost with Jesus as his advocate ever be lost again? If I'm saved to the uttermost, how can I get lost again? Again, the Bible is full of ways that we can be saved. Stories of people who have come to God in faith and repentance have been born again and had their lives transformed by the power of the gospel. But we don't find a single instance in all throughout the Bible where one has come to Christ and then been lost again and then challenged to be born again again. And so are we saved to the uttermost? Is Jesus our advocate? If so, we can't ever be lost again because we're not saved on the top layer or the the second layer. We're saved completely and totally to the uttermost. So then take a look at 1 Peter chapter 1 uh, as well. It's a few pages over to the right in your Bible probably. 1 Peter chapter 1. First Peter chapter 1, verse number 3, Blessed be the God and Father, or Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again to a lively, lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now again, the word begotten means we have been born. Again, Jesus is the only begotten son of the Father. He's the only natural child of God the Father. But you and I have been saved, we have been born again, uh, by what? According to the lively hope of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We're we're saved by the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, which is the gospel. To what? Verse number four, this is really important. To an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you. So again, if if we take the Bible at its word, the question then is, how can our inheritance be corrupted, defiled, fade away, and our reservation in heaven removed if we're kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation? So again, verse 3 says that we're saved according to the abundant mercy that he's begotten us again. Uh, We're saved uh, by the blood of Jesus Christ, verse number 2. And now we have an incorruptible, undefiled, unable to fade away hope that is reserved for us in heaven. So what what could we possibly do to corrupt our inheritance, 
to have our hope fade away and to have our reservation in heaven struck from the record. How could we do that? I don't know that it's possible if one has an incorruptible. And so again, if, if you and I can corrupt the incorruptible, this is going to sound crazy, but just hear me out, okay? If God has something that he says is incorruptible, cannot be corrupted, and you and I can corrupt it, who's the more powerful being there at that point? I am. My power is greater than God because he said it was incorruptible, but I corrupted it. He said that I was undefiled, yet I defiled myself. And so my power is greater than God's power because God's not powerful enough to keep me incorruptible, undefiled, and to give me a reservation in heaven that doesn't fade away. So again, we're questioning the power of God. We're questioning the power of the blood of Christ. If the blood of Christ is not enough to cover my sin, past, present, and future, again, I have to say, of what value is it? The blood of Christ was enough to get me on my foot in the door but then my good behavior is going to have to carry me the rest of the way? The blood of Christ was enough to get my name written down in the book, but to make sure that my name doesn't get struck from the book, I've got to go to church, stay away from big sins, you know, if I ever, quote, fall into sin, I have to be born again a second time. Uh, again, these things don't biblically make sense. They, they, they're not even logically defensible. But we're not trying to defend by logic. This is really important that when we, we talk with people, we don't try to use logic as our tool. We use the Bible as our tool. I had somebody one time trying to, to argue Calvinism against me, and they basically said, you know, if, if, you, if you go into a store and you pay for a gallon of milk, wouldn't you take that gallon of milk home? Yeah. Well, then why would God pay for the sins of people that he doesn't get to take home with him? I see where you're going with that, but salvation's not a gallon of milk, and there's about a dozen scriptures that say that Christ died for the sins of the whole world, that he's the propitiation for our sins, and not our sins only, but the sins of the whole world, and that God's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to redemption. Like, your, your logic was spot on. It makes sense. Who would pay for a gallon of milk and walk out? But we're not arguing this logically. We're arguing it biblically. And so, again, we have to stand on scripture. Again, logically, we can say, you know, why would God save you and allow you to continue in your sin for the rest of your life? That, that makes logical sense. But if you read the Bible, God never intended that to begin with. God's, God, again, uh, what should we say? Then? Should we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. Romans chapter 6, verse number 1. And so, again, we have to make sure that we don't allow logic to rule the day. Logic is finite. God's word is infinite. And so, so many times, especially, uh, this comes down to, uh, again, apologetics, you know. Apologetics is using reasoning to, to guide people towards truth. At the end of the day, it comes down to faith. At the end of the day, uh, I think it was uh, Josh McDowell in the evidence that demands a verdict said, if we found Noah's Ark and we found stalls that were labeled for every animal that were labeled two by two, and we were able to walk on it, we're still going to have to have faith that this really was Noah's Ark and not something that somebody cooked up a few thousand years ago. And so again, everything still comes down to faith, even the things we can see with our own eyes. So we can't allow logic to rule the day because there comes a point where we have to believe it by faith. And so again, when it comes to our salvation, we're not trying to logically reason this out. We're trying to biblically reason it out. So next we see, if Jesus has satisfied the payment 
for the full penalty of God's righteous judgment on the cross for our sins? How can one leave that covenant and cause Christ to pay the penalty for sin again? Again, if we take a look at Romans chapter 3, verse number 25. Actually, we're in Hebrews right now. We're right near Hebrews. Turn back to Hebrews, if you would, because uh, we're already here. Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, verse number 10. By which we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. Get, get this. And, and again, when I have these conversations with people, they say, oh, you're just cherry-picking verses. You can cherry-pick a verse or two. I'll give you that. But you can't cherry-pick like three dozen verses. You can illuminate truth. And so again, if we take a look at Romans chapter 10, verse number 10, and just take it for what it says. By which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. One time. We're sanctified by the offering of the body of Christ. And every priest standeth daily ministering, offering oftentimes the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. How many times does Christ have to pay the penalty of our sin? Obviously, once. He did it once, and he sat down at the right hand of the Father. It's interesting, he didn't stand at the right hand of the Father, he sat. You know why? Sitting is a resting position. Jesus had no other work to accomplish. He did his job, he dusted his hands off, he sat down at the right hand of the Father, seated until he is called upon again to bring his bride home. Seated at the right hand of the Father. Jesus has done his work. So again, we're going to say that that wasn't sufficient. That I pled the blood of Christ on my sin once. And then went back to my sin and I have to plead it a second time? Has my sin already been paid for or not? If it's been paid for, how long is that payment good for? According to this, he made a sacrifice once and for all. That you and I are sanctified through the body of Christ once and for all. Turn to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, 23, we're very familiar with. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But how are we made righteous? Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So again, we're justified and declared righteous freely by the work of Christ. We don't stay justified by our own works. We're, we are declared righteous. Now, again, it's interesting to understand the word justification. Sometimes people, pet people of mine, pastors say, justification is just as if I'd never sinned. That's cute. It's easy to remember. It's not the full depth of what justification is. Justification takes my sin, places it on Christ, and he is declared guilty and punished. It takes the righteousness of Christ and places it on me and declares me righteous. So Christ was clothed with my sin, suffered, bled, died. I, in turn, am clothed with the righteousness of Christ and God sees me as sinless in a legal sense. 
Not sinless in the fact that I'm perfect, but sinless in a legal guilt sense. So then if we're justified freely, then do we maintain that justification by good behavior? Do we maintain that justification by making sure we go to church, we don't cuss, and we don't smoke cigarettes, and smoke dope, and do drugs, and drink alcohol, and, you know, look at pornography, and commit adultery? Is that how we keep our justification? If so, that should be clear somewhere in the Bible. But if we're justified, get this word, freely, by what? By grace, undeserved, unmerited favor. I'm declared righteous in God's sight, not because I'm a good person, but despite the fact that I'm a terrible, wicked, wretched sinner. So it, again, none of this is valued based on my own personal merit because uh, verse number 23, we all fall short. But verse 25 says this, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation, a complete satisfactory payment and covering of my sin through what? Through faith in his blood, to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. So God's holding back his wrath and judgment to give you the opportunity to come to faith in Christ. And when you do, Jesus' blood covers completely all of your sin. That's what the word propitiation means. It's a call back to the Old Testament, the Day of Atonement, when the blood would be spilt on the uh, mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant, and the people's sins were symbolically completely covered by the blood that was shed. Jesus is the propitiation, the perfect covering for my sin and yours, so that when God sees us, he sees us as declared righteous, justified, without sin, not based on our own merit, but based on the blood of Christ. Our personal behavior factors zero into all of this. It's 100% the blood of Jesus Christ. Turn back to John chapter 3. John 3.36 is again one of those very black and white, very binary verses that you should circle, star, underline, commit to memory. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. John 3.36. And he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. So it's not just a matter of one has life, one doesn't. One has life, one doesn't, and God's punishment is on top of his head. Again, that's why I say if you've never been saved or born again, God's punishment is literally on your shoulders waiting for you to take your last breath, and then it's 100% punishment for the rest of eternity. That's heavy. And you say, well, that's a really big deal. That's why we do what we do. That's why 25 of us went out yesterday into a, a community that we don't even really know anybody and tried to find people that need Jesus because it's that big of a deal. That's why we'll have a missionary that's going to Africa this summer to get the gospel to people in Africa because they need to know about Jesus. That's why we do what we do. That's why we have a missions of Sunday next, next Sunday because this is a huge deal. Turn over to 1 John chapter 5, if you would. So the author of John is also the author of 1 John, and 2 John and 3 John, if you're wondering. Um, exact same guy. So in 1 John chapter 5, 
Verse number 11, this might sound really familiar, and this is the record that God hath given unto us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He that hath not the Son hath, he that hath, the Son hath life, he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God that you may know. You can underline that word know, not think so or have high probability. Know that you have eternal life and that you may believe on the name of the Son of God. Hey, I want you to have full faith and confidence in the name of Jesus because it's enough. I don't want you to have to worry like, hey, have I done enough to go to heaven or not? The, the blood of Christ is enough. The name of Jesus is enough. That's where our salvation lies. And so, again, if, if Jesus alone is the determining factor in our eternal life, where does our personal behavior factor into our condemnation? Condemnation only comes for those who hath not the Son, according to John chapter 3, verse number 36, according to 1 John chapter 5. Condemnation only gets factored into those that are without Christ. Not those who have Christ and don't behave themselves. Not those who have Christ and, and fall back from their sanctification. And so again, can you be a true, authentic Christ follower who sins continually, habitually? Sure. You cannot be a mature, sanctified believer if that's the case. But we can't confuse sanctification and salvation. They're two separate things altogether. And so when, when people question eternal security and like, well, that person must not be saved because they're not behaving themselves. And when I say behaving themselves, I'm talking about whatever sin is, is the sin of the day. That person must not be saved because they're doing X. That person could be saved. They're just not walking in sanctification. They're just not walking in holiness and righteousness. They might be living in rebellion to the Father. Doesn't necessarily determine whether or not someone's saved or not saved. And again, at the end of the day, it's not our job to determine whether or not someone's truly born again or not. It's our job to preach the gospel and to examine our own lives to make sure that we're saved. But our personal behavior has no bearing whatsoever in condemnation versus no condemnation. Because we're all sinners and all fall short and are in danger of God's punishment, condemnation. All of us. All of us deserve to go to hell. That's a given. But the only way that we can avoid hell is by having the Son and having life. That's it. When you sprinkle our behavior and good works into this, you're creating a works-based salvation. That Okay, maybe you're not saved by, by works, but you maintain your salvation by works, which again is incongruent with the entire premise of the gospel. Final verse we'll look at tonight, Galatians chapter 2. Turn over there if you would. <laughs> you might be cheating then, just circling these in your notes. Don't do that. Uh, turn over there in your Bible. Galatians chapter 2, verse number 16. Now, mind you, Galatians was a book that was written to people who were being taught a works-based salvation. These Judaizers had come into these churches in the Galatian region and told them, hey guys, congratulations, you're Christ's followers now. You still need to be circumcised. You still need to celebrate the feast days. Uh, you still need to follow the Levitical law, but you can add Jesus into whatever you want, and this is Christianity. And Paul's like, oh, no, 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 no. That's not the case at all. The law is fulfilled in Christ. We no longer have a need for that. Circumcision, uncircumcision, doesn't matter at the end of the day. Not really important. 
but how you follow Christ is important. Works of the law can't save you. And so we find Galatians chapter 2, verse number 16, knowing that a man is not justified. Again, justified what? Declared righteous. Again, that word justified, my sin on Christ, Christ's righteousness on me, that's justification. We're not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Jesus Christ that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. But if while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves are, are found sinners, is Christ therefore the minister of sin? God forbid. And so, and then he goes down to verse number 20, Galatians 2.20 is a phenomenal verse. I'm crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith in the, the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. That's not even in today's message. It's just a really good verse that I couldn't pass up. Verse number 16, though, not declared righteous by the works of the law. So how can I be declared righteous by grace, by faith, but then be kept by the works of the law? So again, I'm not saved by grace and then kept by my works. That doesn't make a lot of sense. The Bible tells us that all of our righteousness is as filthy rags in the sight of God. God's not impressed with how good you are. How good you are on your best day is repulsive to God. God's not looking for you and I to be saved by grace and by his mercy and by the blood of his son, and then we keep our salvation by how good we are. Because here's the thing, you're not good. And if there were criteria where one could lose their salvation, every single person in this room would lose their salvation probably multiple times a day. Because we are not enough. And the whole point of eternal security is that I am not enough. I must plead the blood of Christ over my sin. I must trust the grace of God for my justification. I have to put my faith in Jesus and his work is enough. My work will always be insignificant and insufficient 100% of the time. So I just leave you with this question tonight. Are you saved? Do you know for sure that you're saved? That's the most important question you'll ever answer in your entire life. I don't know what it was if somebody let off a, a late firework or whatever over here, but imagine like a, a bomb got let off in our church building, you know? Thankful that church bombing isn't really a big, huge thing in, in Honolulu, but if it were, are you sure that you'd be with God tonight? We had um, <coughs> one of the folks that, that I uh, just married at the end of uh, last year uh, on New Year's Eve, uh, Sam and Melissa. Melissa came here as a uh, 15, 16-year-old high school student, and it was the day after the false missile alert that we had. And she came, and I was like, hey, where's your parents? And she was like, my parents don't go to church. I was like, oh. And it was interesting to me that you have a high school kid who came to church on their own, like walked to church on their own. And so after church, you know, I'm asking questions, trying to find out, you know, her story and ask her if she was saved. She says, I think so. You know, yesterday brought me a lot of questions that I didn't know. Like, if that thing was real, where would I go? And she says, I was kind of hoping you could point me in the right direction. Whoa, you came to the right place. And so the opportunity to go through the gospel of Melissa, and she says, I put my faith and trust in Christ when I was in middle school. She said, I remember that like it was yesterday. I just didn't know if that was enough because I haven't really been in church and around Christian things lately. Was that enough? I'm thankful to tell you that that is enough now and forever. And she said, but I feel like something's missing. It is. Knowing your father and walking with him, 
that's missing. Let's fix that. And she said, okay. And then uh, Melissa was here as part of our teen group and came every Wednesday night by herself. And her senior year of high school, she said, Pastor, I'm getting ready to go to college and I don't want to ruin my life. What do I do? Her parents aren't saved. And so I said, you need to get it plugged into a church. You need to find any Christian Bible study organization that's out there that's doctrinally sound. Attach yourself to it. Get involved and be around other Christians and steer clear of all the garbage that college life brings. And she said, okay. And man, she did. By the grace of God, she did. And um, she met Sam and uh, Sam and her dated in high school and Sam wasn't saved. And I was just like, ah, bad idea. You need to run from that. And... Um, she ended up leading Sam to Christ, and I was just like, ah, oh, bad idea. You know, you lead your boyfriend to Christ, you're going to be leading him the rest of your life. But, man, uh, I was shocked and amazed. Sam, man, jumped in with both feet, wanted to go through discipleship, went through discipleship, got baptized, got on fire for Jesus, just wants to live for Jesus, and wants to do things right. And I, Pastor, I just want to walk in wisdom in my relationship with, with Melissa. I want to marry a godly woman. If she's not it, I don't want her. And it's just like, what? Like, <laughs> where did this come from, you know? You know what that was? That was sanctification. So you have one person who got saved and never grew in their faith because they weren't discipled, they weren't challenged, who weren't, wasn't walking the path of sanctification. You have another person who got it immediately and then began to grow like a weed. And man, it wasn't long before he was neck and neck with her and then surpassed her and then began to provide spiritual leadership in their dating relationship. Man, hello. And I got the, the pleasure of taking them through premarital counseling and, and marrying them on New Year's Eve. Uh, and it's just awesome. And so, but the, the question that she had was like, hey, I made a commitment to Christ, but I haven't really done much with that. Was that enough? And I would hate to look somebody in the eyes and say, oh, that was not enough. You, you didn't do your part. I mean, God was going to keep his end of the promise, but you didn't keep yours, so God quit on you. That's not a covenant. A covenant says, I say this, I'm done, I'm really done. The covenant is this. Even if I don't keep my end of the bargain, God will always keep his. Faithful is he that calleth you who also will do it. That God's never going to say like, oh, too bad. You didn't keep your end of the bargain. You're done. You're cut off. You were my kid, but you didn't behave like my kid, so you're not my kid anymore. That's not who God is. God says, hey, I'm going to hold you until the day of redemption. Jesus says, I'm going to hold you in my hand. The Father's going to hold you in his hand, and nobody can pluck you out of my Father's hand. You are safe and secure. So if you're here tonight and you're just like, I'm not really sure that I'm saved, man, do not hit the double doors in the back until you know with 100% certainty that you're saved. And if you're saved, let me encourage you with this. Start the growth process. Begin that process of sanctification and growth and put your flesh to death and walk with Jesus and love, love him and live for him. Man, that's where the good stuff is found. Thanks for joining us for the Hui Kala Baptist Church podcast. We'd love to have you as our guest this Sunday morning at 10 a.m.